One day in December 2021, dozens of Hawaiians lay motionless on the cement at the feet of Queen Liliokalani, their friends and families poisoned, hospitalized, vomiting for days, covered in angry red rashes after drinking and bathing in tap water laced with petroleum chemicals. They are the Oahu Water Protectors, and they're staging a die-in in front of Hawaii's state capitol building to force the U.S. Navy to acknowledge its role in contaminating the drinking water of Oahu. The Red Hill Navy Base's jet fuel tanks, which can hold up to 250 million gallons of jet fuel, sit just 100 feet above the aquifer that provides drinking water to over 400,000 people, and the tanks are leaking. The activists' demand is simple. Close the base and return the stewardship of the land and the water beneath it to the people who have tended to the land for hundreds of years before the Navy arrived, the native Hawaiians. Welcome to Tomorrow is the Problem, a podcast from ICA Miami's Art and Research Center, where we approach urgent issues of our time by unearthing the hidden meanings behind everyday phenomena and ask how they might help us build a more liberated future. I'm your host, Donna Honarpisha, and this season, we're thinking with the ocean as a place of knowledge. Today's episode will take us from revitalizing Hawaii's freshwater ponds to Miami's own indigenous history and onto the banks of the Columbia River in Washington state, all on a quest to answer the question, what can we learn from indigenous cultures about how to face the climate crisis? We'll approach the ocean as a channel of knowledge, exploring patterns of appropriation and transmission of cultural heritage through seaways, practices that both connect and protect our relationship to the environment, and ultimately the way forward. Candice Fujikane grew up on Maui and teaches courses on Hawaiian and Asian American literature and theory at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. As an activist, she has stood for the land and waters of Hawaii for the past 20 years. She was at the Oahu Water Protectors die-in in December, and she celebrated with them when the Navy announced in March of 2022 that it was decommissioning Red Hill Base. In late 2021, Candace joined us at ICA Miami to give a lecture called Cartographies of Kanaloa, Inundation and Restoration which looked to the ways that the ancestral knowledge of the Kanaka Maoli, also known as Native Hawaiians, provides what she calls indigenous economies of abundance to support the fight against climate changes in ways that the capitalist economies of scarcity cannot. We caught up with her in her home office, where she gazes out daily onto the lush Hawaiian countryside and the chickens running in her yard as she reflects on her research and puts it in writing. Candace shared with us the ancestral legacy she fights to preserve and protect. I think for people in Hawaii, land stewardship has been a really big question, how to best steward land. And of course, the best stewards are Kanaka Maoli, and they've stewarded land in Hawaii for thousands of years. So they know best 
through intergenerational practices of the art of kilo, which is keen observation, meticulous, systematic observation of the natural world. Dominant Western views would call this kind of meticulous, systematic observation science and create a sharp, impenetrable divide between the scientific and the spiritual. But the Kanaka Maoli do not subscribe to that distinction. Simply put, for them, science and spirituality are inextricable. For Kanaka Maoli, there are 400,000 akua, and that word akua has popularly been defined as gods. But, you know, people tend to think of Greek gods or the Christian god. But for Kanaka Maoli, akua means the elemental forms or energies. So Kanaloa is the deep consciousness of the ocean, and Kane is the freshwater springs that flow underground, the deity Laka is the natural process of evapotranspiration. One of the deities is Lono. He is the deity of rain. He resides in water. Kalein Uhiva. I think Kalein Uhiva describes Lono Noho Nohoikawai as the deity of, you know, the aeration, the oxygenation of water. Lono Nui Noho Ikawai can be translated as great lono dwelling in the water. He's symbolized by the akua loa, a tall wooden staff topped with a carved human head. Pala fern, feather lays, and skins of the kaupu bird dangle from the akua loa's crosspiece, as do white cloths to represent billowing clouds. Traditionally, during the Mahiki Harvest Festival, the akua loa was carried across the island in tribute. Nature, in turn, is governed by the relationships and elemental laws between these deities. In this cosmogony, the ocean acts as an agent unto itself, a knowledge keeper, and proof of nature's resiliency. So many Native Hawaiian practitioners understand that there are certain kanavai, or laws. They call them the kanavaya keakua, or the laws of the elements. And I think that in this era of climate change, it is really important to have a baseline recording of elemental phenomena and the natural world in order to understand how to approach changes in the natural world. When we pay attention to the kanavaya keakua, or the laws of the element, what's necessary for the regeneration of growth of abundance, then, you know, I think that we see how we can become participants in those events. Candace's scholarly work does just that, looks to the Kanaka Maoli and other indigenous people's traditions of land stewardship to find smaller, sustainable ways to do the restorative work that must be done. One of the arguments I do make in my book, Mapping Abundance, is that just as a small harmful change, like a very small increase in temperature, is right now causing the melting of glaciers, sea level rise, the acidification of the ocean, we're seeing, you know, lessening rainfall, droughts, fires, and, and more meteorological changes, Small restorative events also have ripple effects that are exponential and bring about changes that we often don't even imagine. Those small events can have an especially big impact in the ocean, 
because of its sheer size and interconnectedness with weather patterns all over the world. Rather than the expansionist and extractive models of capitalist systems, Candace guides us to work with nature's currents, a form of attunement indigenous people have embodied for a long time. Candace told us about how in 2020, a group of volunteers started cleaning up a thicket of overgrown mangroves in an ancient man-made fish pond on Oahu. Unlike in Miami, where mangroves are an essential part of the ecosystem, mangroves are an invasive species in Hawaii. When left unattended, their roots can wreak havoc, clogging the freshwater streams that flow from the mountains to the sea. So I'm looking at a very specific event where near a fish pond in Heauli, people are clearing mangroves in order to unclog the freshwater stream flows from the mountains to the sea. And that is what is very important for many different reasons, not only for the health and well-being of the fish pond, but also for the ways in which the relationship between Kane's freshwater flows interact with Kanaloa's salt waters, the warm salt waters of the Pacific. And Punivai explains that what happens is Kane's cold waters flow out to the ocean. It creates a cool water barrier around the islands. So when hurricanes come barreling across the warm waters of the Pacific, when they hit the cool waters of Kane, they actually veer north or south of us. We have a lot of what are called punalu'u, like freshwater springs that erupt into the ocean waters, and all of that cools the waters. And that's the relationship between Kane and Kanaloa that protects us from hurricanes. The fish pond is tiny compared to the vastness of the ocean, and yet a small group of volunteers was able to help restore balance to the entire island's ecosystem, and in the process, fend off hurricanes. Moreover... When a fish pond project decides to unclog the stream water, the flow of the stream water by pulling out the mangroves, that is also a small act that has repercussions for other places in Hawaii where fish ponds are also freeing up the streams. The fish ponds need oxygenated water. They need fresh stream water flow. That helps to cool off the water in the fish pond. It helps to provide shelter for baby fish. You know, without that kind of protection, fish ponds often undergo these massive fish kills where you would find 10,000 fish, you know, have died because of changing El Nino weather patterns. This is how we see a restoration project showing that very small place can have these effects. And it also makes people see firsthand what happens when an environment or a natural area is restored because we see the return of native fish, native plants, and native animals. So once these restorative effects happen, we see the return of limu ele'ele, which is a seaweed dependent on the mixing of fresh water and salt water. We see the return of the kipukai, the aka'akai, all of these different plants, the ahu'ava, all of these plants dependent upon that fresh water mixing with the salt water. We see the return of the I.O. birds, especially the I.O. birds. You know, they're an indicator of, of a restoration happening. When you see I.O. chicks, those are a sign of, of hope. 
And I think that's what these restoration projects give us, not just physical manifestations of restoration, but it also restores our mental health and well-being. It provides a kind of spirituality that you don't see in many discussions of anthropogenic climate change, right? There's not a room for a kind of understanding of the spiritual rebirthing that's happening as well. Once again, the scientific and the spiritual overlap, or maybe they never should have been separated at all. Candace argues that we don't need to look to the future and advanced technology to find the answer to the climate crisis. We just need to remember what the water has already taught us, in Hawaii and beyond. I feel like People in other places have also grown these kinds of knowledges of, of the elements and their connection to water. Water having a kind of memory, I think, is something that we see in so many different cultures, that water captures memory and that water itself has a memory. So all over the world where waters are being dammed or the courses of water are being changed, the indigenous people of those places understand that eventually water will remember where it originally flowed. Perhaps water holds the memory that colonial and capitalist models of progress and extraction have driven so many of us to forget. If the sea hasn't forgotten us, and if it is rising to overwhelm us before we can safely find a way to respect its wisdom, how do we relearn its language in order to heal the sea and ourselves? And scholars like Kalen Uhiva and Rosie Alegado have described the rising seas as the rising of Kanaloa. So it's not a catastrophic event causing panic and anxiety, but rather a practical question. Kanaloa is rising. How are we to greet him? Before we said goodbye, Candace shared a chant with us, a call to abundance. The chant evokes the image of thousands of seeds flowing in the wind across the land and planting themselves in the earth, passing on their abundance of knowledge for generations to come. It's written by Candace's teacher, Kekuhi Kealii Kanaka Ole Hailani. It starts with this image of these beautiful seeds that blow in the wind, that plant themselves in the earth and then grow. And it's just amazing. So it goes. So it's a very long chant, but that is so, you get to hear the vibration in the voice. And I'm a beginner, you know, I've only been taking chant for two years, but I feel so grounded. We leave the verdant, volcanic landscape of Hawaii and arrive in Miami, our home city. The ICA Miami sits on Tequesta land, so let's take a moment to tell a tiny fraction of their story. The Tequesta were one of the first tribes to settle in Florida. For approximately 2,000 years, they lived along Biscayne Bay. In 1998, archaeologists found remnants of the Tequesta land, specifically a circle that was said to hold spiritual meaning for the Tequesta people. 
A significant site for indigenous people, the discovery became known as Miami Circle, the birthplace of Miami. Miami Circle sits at the mouth of the Miami River, where the river meets Biscayne Bay. The Tequesta's relationship with the land and water was formed by their proximity to commingling waterways, riverbanks, and bays, which gave them unfettered access to food and instant transportation routes. From the endless fishing opportunities provided by Biscayne Bay to the then pristine stretch of uninterrupted waters of the Everglades. Settling where the land meets these shores, the Tequesta built communal temples that embodied their spiritual beliefs, including the belief that humans have three souls, one in the eyes, one in the shadow, and one in the reflection. Echoes of these spiritual sites lie beneath the now famous Miami Circle in downtown Miami. When Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon first encountered the Tequesta in 1513, these South Florida natives numbered up to 20,000. In 1763, when the Spanish ceded Florida to the British, only 300 Tequesta remained due to settlement battles, slavery, and disease. By the 1800s, there were only a few survivors of the tribe left. Today, the Tequesta are considered an extinct people with no known living descendants. And the stewardship of the land has passed to the Miccosukee tribe, a thriving community who have long inhabited the Everglades. Miami's culture has always been and will always be shaped by its proximity to the water, from its indigenous history to its uncertain future due to rising sea levels. So, as Candace asked, Kanaloa is rising. How are we to greet him? We put that question to Dina Gilio Whitaker. Dina teaches American Indian Studies at California State San Marcos. Dina's research focuses on indigenous nationalism, self-determination, environmental justice, and education. She's also the author of As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice, From Colonization to Standing Rock. I'll say, uh, introduce you my traditional way, why Pisnaxiok, Isquis Dina Jilio Whitaker. And uh, I am coming to you from the traditional and unceded homelands of the Ahashiman Nation in what's currently called San Clemente in Orange County, Southern California. And I am a descendant of the Colville Confederated Tribes, the Sinaixt Band, which is located in Washington State. The Colville Confederated Tribes is a collection of 12 different tribes who share a reservation about 90 miles west of Spokane, Washington. When the reservation was created in 1872, it encompassed more than 2 million acres. Today, it's about two-thirds of that size. The tribes that live on the reservation speak different languages and have different cultures, but were tied together by the common thread of the Columbia River and its bounty. The main thing that we had in common was a place called the Kettle Falls on the Columbia River that was really the center of our culture because there was a major salmon fishery there that had fed the tribes in the region for thousands of years. So this was a major gathering place where people would come and set up a community every summer for thousands of years this went on. 
in order to gather food and to do important cultural activities of all kinds. Uh, you know, not just fishing, but people would come to find, you know, mates. They would come to engage in sporting things like horse racing and、um, hand games, things like that. So, so this place was really the the center of our cultures collectively until it was. Drowned by the building of the Grand Coulee Dam, and、uh, with the building of that dam in the late 1930s, when it was finished, the dam, which was at the time the largest dam in the country, created a lake, a very, very large lake, and the lake drowned the falls, and so that meant that we had no more access to our salmon fishery, and that's the case to this day. The loss of the falls meant much, much more than simply destroying a food source for the Colville Confederated Tribes. It fractured their bonds and created a cultural wound. So, salmon is very central to the Columbia River cultures. All up and down the whole Columbia Plateau, we're all fisher people. We all consider ourselves salmon people, very much like for the Plains people, they considered themselves buffalo people. It was the buffalo that sustained them, and the buffalo who is kind of like the most sacred of the beings central to their cultures. Well, the same is true for us with salmon. So it really constitutes. The, I always say it's like cutting the heart out of our cultures when that dam was built because it cut us off from our relative, the salmon. Dina's mother left the reservation in the 1950s during the implementation of California's relocation and termination policy after the dam was built and before Dina was born. But she carried with her the memory of a time before the dam flooded her family's home, and the memory of how the Columbia River sustained her family's culture. She passed those memories along to her daughter as well. Dina grew up in Los Angeles at the height of Californian surf culture. Picture the Beach Boys, but she didn't actually learn to surf herself until she moved to Oahu in her twenties. It was a decision that would change her life forever. Surfing is. It's totally visceral. I mean, one of the things that's so compelling about it is that it forces you to be totally present. You have to learn how to be in relationship to the ocean, and any surfer will tell you. Doesn't matter what culture they come from, what race they are. It doesn't matter. It's that you learn respect. The ocean forces you to learn to respect it because if you don't respect it, it can take your life. Surfing became a means for Dina to connect with the sea, similar to the way her family once connected with the river. So you have to learn a set of skills and an attitude and approach to it that recognizes that the ocean is in charge, and you need to learn how to operate within that. And so that's about approaching it. With humbleness, like a humility, you have to not a swim for sure. You know, be able to hold your breath and learn etiquette and safety and all that kind of stuff. But surfing is again, it's this connection to directly. You are literally immersed in the ocean. The ocean embraces you. The ocean can embrace you with love and like a mother, like the native people refer to the ocean as the mother or the grandmother. She can embrace you with care and love at the same time that she can take your life or hurt you. 
Dina has since gone on to become a leading voice in the field of surf studies. As scholars, we talk about the way that surfing history has been written. And because of the rise of this critical surf studies scholarship, it's been able to correct the histories that have been written for a century by white settler men, because that's who's written the histories from the, from the beginning outside the Hawaiian context. For over a century, the conventional narrative of surf history was that two white men, one of whom, Jack London, wrote White Fang and the Call of the Wild, saved surfing in the early 1900s. By their account, it was languishing as a sport, having been neglected by the native Hawaiian people. With the help of George Freeth and Olympic champion Duke Kahanamoku, human London allegedly resuscitated the sport and created an entire tourism industry around it. In reality, though, by the time they had arrived in Hawaii, half the population had been decimated by diseases brought by Europeans and Calvinist missionaries who had been attempting to suppress surfing for generations. These conditions had taken an enormous toll. Hume and London didn't save surfing, they simply legitimized it in the eyes of white settlers and then figured out how to capitalize off of it. Dina views correcting these false narratives and reclaiming surfing as a spiritual and artistic practice as part of her scholarly framework for indigenizing environmental justice. Part of environmental justice is about reclaiming those connections, reclaiming lands, reclaiming our knowledge systems, and and how we can use those knowledge systems and how the world at this point, or at least the U.S., needs access to those knowledge systems because those knowledge systems constituted sustainable societies for thousands of years. I mean, the very reason that Native people existed on the continent for so long was because they understood what it meant to live within the limitations of the natural world. They understood that what you do to the land, you do to yourself. So then, how do we re-engage with the memory of the sea? How do we greet Kanaloa? I always say that climate change is not just a problem of technology or economics, but it's a problem of philosophy because it's the values that come out of particular worldviews that shape human behavior on the land. And it's the Western values of endless exploitation of the natural world where man, humans have, literally men, have dominion over the land that has gotten us into the mess that we're in, where the land is commodified. The land is no more than what it can produce economically. So there's this disconnection of our relationship, our relationality with the land that is what's responsible for just the wanton destruction of the land now. So it's the values of understanding how to live in relationship to the earth and to the natural elements. That's what needs to be restored. And that's why Indigenous knowledge is so critically important to how we imagine a response to climate change, how we adapt to it, or even how we mitigate it. We asked Dina, could activities that reconnect us to water transform our notions of stewardship and help us meaningfully engage with the activism around environmental justice? Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. 
And surfers have a vested interest, in some ways more so than anybody else, to work to keep the waters clean so that we don't get sick. And then, you know, from there, there is the developing concern for other life forms in the ocean, why you want to protect not just yourself, but the dolphins and the whales and the fish and the turtles and and everything else there. Because you have this direct experience of interconnection with all of that, it's a holistic conversation. It involves the linkages of a wide range of phenomenon that have to do with, you know, not just fossil fuel, the concentration of greenhouse gases in the environment, but how that is part of the overfishing of the oceans. And what about disasters like the Fukushima nuclear power plant meltdown and how that contributed to the environmental degradation and the depletion of fish resources and ongoing toxification and other things that we could talk about that make it obvious that it's all related, that climate change is, again, just part of this larger sort of basket of environmental issues. Would you say that surfing and engaging with the ocean in that way is a way to counter the feeling of climate anxiety or paralysis? That's a good observation. I would agree with that. I think that one of the reasons that people surf or are so drawn to it is because it brings happiness. It brings joy. And, uh, you know, we talk about the surf stoke. I think it's arguable that the surf stoke is a lot of different things, but it generally refers to the, the happiness and joy that surfing brings people. And certainly we could connect that to being some sort of therapeutic countering of climate anxiety. Even though we're in the middle of it, even though we can, we're those canaries in the coal mine, some of the best activism is coming from surfers. And we all have to find ways to deal with this anxiety about climate change. And surfing is just, I think it's just one of those avenues. For both Dina and Candace, the ocean can be a crucial place for memory transference. Indigenous-born modalities, including surfing and environmental restoration efforts, are what will allow us to rethink and transform our relationship to our previous waterways and break free from the colonial and capitalist logics of expansions and extraction that have long fractured the connection between humans and the sea. What do you think the Western colonial perspective of climate change is missing? It's indigenous worldview. It's, you know, the values that were on this land since time immemorial, the ways that humans interacted on the land and gave the impression of a pristine environment. When Europeans got here, they talked about the wilderness and the virgin wilderness and how, you know, to them it looked like there were no humans that lived on here, but they misunderstood what they were seeing. They didn't get that what they saw was a result of native land, active native land management. It's very clear to me that this is what's missing in climate change narratives. But I do see that it's changing. I think that there's more and more attention being paid by the environmental movement, by scientists and conservationists. And there's finally a recognition that Native people really weren't the savage barbarians that didn't know how to use land, that they knew what they were doing and they were experts at it. And it's those knowledge systems that need to be drawn from to imagine a more sustainable future that is shaped by a changing climate. 
Next time you walk along the beach and dip your toes into the ocean, remember and actively consider the communities whose life worlds have long been tied to the ocean and its elements. Consider the histories hidden under the endless waves stretching into the horizon. Imagine a city teeming under the surface with warriors practicing aqua jiu-jitsu. Picture the traces left behind by boats carrying travelers looking for home on new shores. Attune yourself for the echoes of an indigenous Hawaiian chant in the air, or the sight of a young surfer on the waves held in the ocean's embrace. Think with the ocean and the deep forms of knowledge, ancient and contemporary, it carries. Imagine what the sea might be trying to impart to you. Taking a cue from indigenous communities, when the sea speaks, listen. Tomorrow is the Problem is produced in partnership with Podfly Productions. This episode was produced and written by Isabel Lee and me, Donna Honarpiche, and edited by Francis Harlow. Our showrunner is Jocelyn Aram. Nina Pollock is our sound designer and mixing engineer. Special thanks to both of our guests, Dina Gilio Whitaker and Candice Fujikane. You can find their books, As Long as Grass Grows, and Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, wherever books are sold. Thank you also to the Oahu Water Protectors for the audio of Jamaica Osorio's singing. And thank you as well to Bruno Hunger and Gregor Huber for letting us use their song Junk as our theme. I'm Donna Honarpiche. Thanks for listening. <laughs>